This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. think we have to blame China or voting machines. I think we can look straight in the eye of Mark Zuckerberg, and that's why Joe Biden won. That's what this was, a corrupt Democratic voter turnout operation. You had them putting their own personnel in to actually run the election in places. You had an entire Democratic Party petrified that Joe Biden was going to be outspent, outfoxed by Trump. A new film called Rigged is coming to a streaming service near you. You're not going to find it in theaters because the censorship gods don't want you to see this moving. And good evening. I'm Rob Schmidt in tonight for Greg Kelly. Good to see you tonight. It is a big night for this new film that digs deep into the role of Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook in the 2020 election. Hundreds of millions of dollars funneled to local election offices and no surprise, the vast majority of those districts did, in fact, go to Joe Biden in the general election. Mark Zuckerberg and his wife spent $400 million in what amounted to a gigantic Democratic voter turnout effort. And to put that in perspective, $400 million is the most money any individual has ever spent to win a presidential campaign in the history of our country. It is massive, it was focused, it was targeted, and unfortunately, it was ruthlessly effective. So the full name of this film is Rigged, the Zuckerberg-funded plot to defeat Donald Trump. It is the work of a group called Citizens United, who is it's, uh, run by David Bossie. You recognize him. He helped Trump win the 2016 election as deputy campaign manager. And tonight, there's a special premiere of this film at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach. So we're starting the show tonight a bit differently. Newsmax correspondent Leo Feldman is live at Mar-a-Lago for us tonight, talking to some of the stars of the film, like Kellyanne Conway and Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Landry. Leo, we'll turn it over to you for a few minutes. Go ahead. That's right. For former President Donald Trump, and I'm here with Jeff Landry, the Attorney General of Louisiana, and also the former special counselor to former President Donald Trump, Kellyanne Conway. Thank you so much for being here with us. Um, we'll start with you, Kellyanne. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, this film, this documentary? And I know you both start in the film, so tell me a little bit about it. Thanks for having me. It's a phenomenal 42-minute documentary that 
exposes exactly what was happening in the 2020 elections. I think the fix was in early on in terms of the Mark Zuckerberg money going predominantly to Democratic districts or places where the Democrats would be able to use those significant funds to gin up their turnout and excitement. This is particularly important because we had a once in a century pandemic. So I think everyone recognized that there would be a different way of voting. But we had more people voting in more ways over more time than ever before. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you've got the 400 million plus of Zuckbucks, you're able to go door to door. You're able to fund these local precincts and make sure that the vote is turned out there. So it was disproportionately funded. And I got to tell you, as Trump's campaign manager in his victory in 2016, Facebook was great to us, meaning they got out of our way. We were able to buy a, a huge number, a high number of Facebook ads, and that's the democratization of information. Donald Trump saying, let's go digital, let's go not just all TV. We didn't have the money or the moxie to do that, really. We wanted to go where people were. But I think Zuckerberg got a lot of heat from his uh, colleagues and, quote, friends after that, saying, you helped Donald Trump get elected. He's going to make sure it didn't happen again in 2020. And the net result of that was putting the thumb on the scale just by working with Democratic operatives like David Pluff, very smart guy, who helped uh, Senator Obama get elected president in 2008, knowing where to deploy those resources and how to make a difference. And they were predominantly active in Georgia, Arizona, and Wisconsin, three states that Donald Trump won in 2016, where he didn't prevail in 2020. And if you just look at the facts and figures in this documentary, it's chilling. And Attorney General, can you tell me a little bit about the legality of that? Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, the grants and the money going to those nonprofits? Yeah, look, I think that in many states, this, this type of donation by an oligarch like Mark Zuckerberg is actually illegal. We don't need corporate money or private money infecting our election system. That is supposed to be sacrosanct to our republic and to the election system. And what happens is it creates a corrosive effect. Remember, that's what we have parties for, right, Republican and Democratic parties they use they're supposed to go out there and entice people to go vote it's not the government's job to entice people to go vote it's the government's job to perform an election in a transparent method but what mark zuckerberg did was he injected money he disenfranchised voters irrespective if they were minorities or not in rural and poorer areas around the country in order to turn up and gin up votes inside of urban areas in swing states and here's the key part he did it with the government. He didn't do it by giving $400 million to the Democratic National Committee. He did it by giving that money directly to our government and infecting that election system. And in Louisiana, before the November election, we filed suit. And just last week, we had an appellate court, a circuit court, the Third Circuit in Louisiana, in a 3-0 panel basically said, it's time to go to trial and once and for all put to bed that this money is illegal in Louisiana. And I want to read you both a statement that we got from uh, the spokesperson of Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Shan. Um, so he, he says, this film of which we've only seen two minutes so far appears to feature the same people advancing the same claims that have been debunked by multiple federal and state courts and respected news organizations, only this time set to dramatic music. What is your take on that? Well, that's not true of me. I have no exposure in that regard, and I think that this documentary should make people who sort of kind of feel that something just wasn't right look at this through an entirely different lens and with an entirely different perspective. 
And so instead of, instead of attacking the messenger, instead of attacking the people who are in the documentary or who are here tonight supporting the documentary, I would challenge Mark Zuckerberg himself and Priscilla Chan, his wife, and everybody at his two nonprofits who wash the money through, and this spokesperson, I would challenge him to watch the documentary and tell us what's wrong with it. What facts are wrong? Because the evidence is there, the receipts are there. And look, this is America. If you want to support someone, if I want to support someone, we have every right to do that. But you have to do it legally and transparently. And again, I want to go back to 2016. It's incredibly important because at the Trump campaign in 2016, as opposed to his 2020 campaign, we were under-resourced, understaffed, underestimated, underdog. So when, when Facebook said to us, here, here's a here's a ecumenical nonpartisan platform on which you can run ads much more cheaply than you can on network TV or cable TV where Hillary was. And we'll give you an embed. We'll give you a staffer on your campaign to help you navigate this digital footprint. We were like, great, one more staffer, terrific. Fast forward, that was not going to happen again because the deal, the implicit deal, the unspoken deal in 2016 was, we're going to do this for you and offer it to Hillary who didn't accept it quite the way we did. But Donald Trump is not supposed to win. And of course he won. And that changed the whole Trump derangement syndrome crowd. Went crazy. By the way, still go crazy. Do you have a Twitter feed? They're still nuts. And so I would challenge that person to tell us what's factually incorrect about where that money went and why. Yeah, I agree with Kellyanne. And also, it's important to remember in 2016, Facebook made a lot of money off of Donald Trump, right? So the, the ability for, for Mark Zuckerberg and his wife to give that money was based upon the money that they made by allowing his platform to be open. But what I would challenge him to do is I would challenge him to read the special counsel in Wisconsin's 150-page report that I read. I would challenge him to read the opinion that just came out of the Third Circuit in Louisiana and come down to Louisiana and tell me why he thinks that those facts are incorrect. And we know that many states across our nation are, you know, passing different election security laws. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what do you hope is accomplished with that? Well, that's the thing. After 2020, you do see a lot of reactive legislation where people say, well, this, whatever the this is, can never happen again. But a once in a century pandemic, it compelled very different voting measures. However, was there a reason or an excuse? I think that lots of good-natured people were using it as a reason, but so many more people were using uh, using the once-in-a-century pandemic, this virus, as an excuse to look at Pennsylvania. They're keeping open who can vote and how long. Oh, we think people are confused, said the election officials who were officially elected to absolutely nothing. We think people are confused. We'll just accept their ballots a little longer. And there were shenanigans happening over time and late in the game that were hard to see in real time. So you see these legislatures saying, you know what, let's make sure that to the extent this happened, it can't happen again. And you see many of those legislatures, legislators and governors who were funded by Zuckbuck saying, oh no, we have to go against that. Well, look, I, I think it, you, you've seen polls. There was an ABC poll that was put out that showed that a cross-section of Americans believe that our election system is broken, right? That do, they've lost faith in that election system. And this is exactly why. When a person like Mark Zuckerberg can stroke a check and then inject that money directly into the government, that is problematic. I mean, think about it. That really hasn't happened since the days of... of 
of the big oligarchs back in, in, in when you had Standard Oil and J.P. Morgan, right, and Rockefeller. And guess what? After they did it, the American people, there was a change. And I think it's what you're seeing in states is that they're starting to sow those they're tightening up their election systems and they're saying, we don't want that. We want people to be able to compete in the, in the ideas and democracies and the platforms that they're running on. And we want to know that when we go vote, our vote is counted. Perfect. Thank you so much. So there you heard it. Kellyanne Conway and Jeff Landry here at Mar-a-Lago. And soon we'll have former President Donald Trump speak to the crowd. Back to you. Okay. Leo Feldman, uh, very interesting film, obviously, in a very big packed room there. The president going to speak tonight at Mar-a-Lago in beautiful uh, South Florida in Palm Beach. Leo, thank you so much. We appreciate it. After the premiere tonight, you are going to be able to rent or buy uh, this film online, thanks to Citizens United. There's the poster there, the film poster there. And can you, I mean, imagine that, $400 million pumped into this thing, and it was all aimed in one direction. The website, www.rigged2020.com. You can download the film right to your computer or your mobile device uh, if you'd like to. Don't miss it. It's an interesting movie. All right, coming up, an imploding Joe Biden trying to steal some of Obama's thunder. Reunited, and it feels so good for the fake news anyway. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. Hi, Rob Carson here. If you love watching Newsmax, you're really going to love listening to our new podcast. It's called the Newsmax Daily. I host it, and I give you the best briefing of the big news of the day, top newsmaker interviews, and even, yes, a few laughs. I know it's hard to believe. So if you're uh, driving, walking, exercising, just about anywhere, you can connect with the Newsmax Daily with me, Rob Carson. Find our podcast online or go to iPhone, Spotify, iHeart, Stitcher, and more, and start listening today. Coming back here gives me a chance to say thank you and spend some time with an extraordinary friend and partner who was uh, by my side for eight years. And Joe Biden and I did a lot together. We helped save the global economy, made record investments in clean energy, we put guardrails on our financial system, we helped turn the auto industry around. Repeal, don't ask, don't tell. But nothing made me prouder than providing better health care and more protections to millions of people across this country. All right, so 12 years ago, Barack Obama gave Americans the Affordable Care Act, unaffectionately known as Obamacare. It was the only major accomplishment of an administration that promised so much, if you remember back in 2008 and all that hope, and in the end delivered very little. Not a lot changed, really. A lot of things changed for the worse. Well, today, Obama came back to celebrate the anniversary of Obamacare, joining his former Vice President, Joe Biden, who, as we all can see, is collapsing uh, in his job as the president. It was Barack Obama's first homecoming to the White House since he left office. Biden signed an executive order for a fairly insignificant expansion of the Affordable Care Act. And you see there in that video, and we could 
watch it all day if we really had to. The real reason Obama was back was to remind liberals why exactly they elected this guy who's wandering around the room, has no idea where he is or what he's doing. And you can see Obama. Oh, we looped it. Perfect. Oh, where am I going? Nah, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing. And Obama just stage left is getting all the attention, being hounded by everybody. Nobody's paying attention to the press of the United States. Can you imagine a moment where the president of the United States is in a room full of people and nobody cares? Think about that. I mean, when you go talk to Trump, you see Trump in a room, he is a vacuum of energy. I mean, everybody wants to be around him. Obama is too. You can see it. It's very presidential. Nobody wants to talk to Joe Biden. Probably the funniest video of the day. Let's talk more about Obamacare, though, and talk a little COVID as well. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is a professor of medicine at Stanford University. And, sir, thank you for coming on the show. Good to see you again. Uh, let's take a look at exactly what Biden did today with this executive order. Pretty clear it was just an Obama show and tell. Overall, pretty vague, promising to expand affordable care plan options, keep prices down, etc. The biggest headline, from what I can see, is Joe claiming he's going to fix the so-called family glitch. Can you explain what exactly that is and, and why exactly it needs to be fixed? Well, there, there were some uh, provisions in the Affordable Care Act that would, uh, if you had uh, like uh, insurance through your employer for for one employee, but then but you didn't get it through your uh, but but you had a family member that didn't get it. You weren't allowed to sign up for the the uh, the exchanges that the that are the key to the Affordable Care Act. Um, so it now allows some of those people to sign up, which is I mean it's not a bad thing. I, I think it's fine. It's just a small thing. There are about 30 million people uninsured in the United States today. Um, and this affects 200,000. So it's it's uh, it's not a it's I, I wouldn't say you know it, it's like a major health policy reform, but you know I, I'm not I'm not against it. Okay, fair enough. You, you may remember the rollout of Obamacare was a, a bit of a mess, uh, to be frank. The online portal crashed within seconds of it being launched. There was a lot of confusion about how it worked and whether you'd be able to keep your doctor. They promised you'd be able to keep your doctor. The media tried but couldn't ignore the fact that uh, it didn't go that way. Up first, more trouble for the healthcare.gov website. Yet another system outage reported overnight. The data center that hosts healthcare.gov crashed. The latest in a series of setbacks for the problem-plagued rollout of the Affordable Care Act. And not to be overlooked, the Obama administration for the utterly disastrous bungled rollout of the healthcare.gov website. Users say the website healthcare.gov repeatedly crashes and kicks off potential customers. Right now, breaking news, there it is live. The healthcare.gov website is down again. What an absolute fiasco. So we're going back 12 years ago. Overall, uh, looking back on Obamacare, the rollout, uh, the problem with not being able to keep your doctors, your overall thoughts. I mean, I think it, it, it was it started with such big promise and it actually has not delivered nearly as much as as, the, as was promised. So, for instance, one of the promises made was that it would cut uh, premiums by twenty five hundred dollars per person. Uh, the premiums have gone up. We now spend nearly 20% of our GDP on healthcare, whereas previously we spent uh, 16. Uh, healthcare dollars were, st were going up uh, even before the Affordable Care Act, but it didn't really stop the trend in health spending. Uh, we it promised a, a, basically to eliminate uninsurance in the United States. But as I said, we still have 30 million people uninsured in the United States. Uh, yeah. There was a big to do about like whether. I, I, the reforms of employer-provided insurance and 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 changing how uh, whether pre-existing conditions should have, should be counted, but you know the healthcare system did not perform well during COVID. Uh, there were rural hospitals that weren't weren't performing well. I, I don't think that the key fundamental things that are wrong with the healthcare system were fixed by the Affordable Care Act. 
Understood. We're going to switch gears now. We're going to get off uh, some of that politics here for a second. I want to turn to COVID, uh, and I want to talk about there's been a lot of interesting developments in the last couple of weeks since we last talked. Uh, new documents obtained by U.S. Right to Know show an American scientist named James LeDuc telling the famous Wuhan scientist who's been dubbed the Batwoman in emails, quote, I certainly do not want to compromise you or your research activities. This is an American scientist saying this to a Wuhan lab scientist. Make any changes that you would like, he told her. This is in April of 2020, uh, talking about making changes, changing the way I think our Congress is going to understand COVID and perhaps being able to affect the way we understand where this virus may have come from, perhaps to protect the Wuhan lab. It's been pretty amazing to see some of this stuff get exposed. I mean, I think the thing is, is it looks to me like a cover-up. It look, I mean, what what yeah. what uh, what you have is a, a whole series of emails between Francis Collins and Tony Fauci, and then a whole bunch of the scientists that worked on gain-of-function research, essentially, uh, including in China, and they come in. Uh, the, the emails come in where they, where they say, "Well, look, this might be a lab leak," and then they have they they hold this secret conclave, and they come out with this the, the, with the lab leak as a conspiracy theory. Essentially, it, it, they, they took something which should be a legitimate concern to government scientists like Tony Fauci, at where we really want to get the bottom of this. Did this arrive as a result of a lab experiment done in, in, in the Wuhan lab, in part supported by the NIH? I mean, that's a really important thing to get right. And they turned it into a, this conspiracy theory and silenced a whole bunch of scientists who otherwise would have been looking into this more carefully. It is something else. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, professor of medicine at Stanford University. Sir, thank you for taking the time. Good to see you as always. Thank you, Rob. You as well. Thank you. All right. Coming up, Hunter Biden. Boy, this is a story that's not going anywhere. In hot water, his gold mine of a laptop, more past corruption, allegations, shadiness. And you recognize that guy on the right? Now he's all up in this thing. More on that coming up next. Stay tuned. Every single solitary, serious investigator, including your network and others, have looked at this, have said there's absolutely zero basis to the accusation that I acted any way inappropriately or that my son did. Every major national, international and local news operations looked into it has said it's a lie. This is the president's flat line. So there's not been a scintilla of evidence pointed out that anything is wrong. There's not a single solitary scintilla of evidence anywhere. There's not been one scintilla of evidence that my son ever interfered, that I ever asked me anything, that I ever got involved in anything. There's a lot of evidence, let's be honest. And it's all starting to pour out now. And it's fun to watch. We're now one step closer to proving what you just heard from the president of the United States is a total lie although it's already effectively been done. Every time Joe Biden is asked about his son's business dealings, Joe says he knows nothing about it. His son didn't do anything wrong. They never talk about business. Lie, lie, lie. Some new emails from Hunter's laptop make all of this impossible to believe, and it already, it already was. Ron Klain is President Biden's chief of staff. You recognize him. 
He was also Biden's chief of staff when Joe was vice president years ago. Back in 2012, Klain reached out to none other than Hunter Biden, asking for quite a bit of money for a very interesting charity that funnels donations straight to the vice president. That, according to some new emails, leaked from Hunter's laptop from hell. Oh, the laptop. Seamus Bruner is director of research at the Government Accountability Institute. And he's also the author of the book Fallout, Nuclear Bribes, Russian Spies, and the Washington Lies that Enriched the Clinton and Biden Dynasties. Great title of that book. Seamus, good to have you on. First off, we're talking about what's called the Vice President's Residence Foundation. Its stated mission is preserving and furnishing the Vice President's 20-room mansion on the grounds of the U.S. Naval Observatory. In other words, things like maintenance, mowing the lawn, furniture, stuff like that. But a 1999 report on Vice President Al Gore from the Center for Public Integrity said the following... A man's home might be his castle, but for Al Gore, the vice president's official residence is more than that. It's a tool to cultivate some of his biggest donors. Gore used the vice president's residence foundation to cultivate relationships with some generous donors, many of whom are now supporting his bid for the presidency. So now you can see how this all works. Your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I, I find it really interesting. Ron Klain says that he doesn't want the bad PR of having Hunter Biden paying for, you know, paying funds into a pass through to the vice president. Mm. I find it very interesting that, you know, Joe Biden has all of these donors, but he, he comes to Hunter for this money. What's the most interesting to me is what's going on at this very same time frame that Ron Klain is asking Hunter Biden for money is Hunter Biden is bringing Chinese businessmen into the White House. He's introducing them to Vice President Joe Biden. There's one specific meeting that takes place right at the end of 2011 of a group called the China Entrepreneurs Club. Hunter Biden and his associates link up this group uh, with the vice president. The meeting does not appear on Vice President Joe Biden's schedule. So it's very strange that, uh, you know, they're, it's not the only thing they're keeping on the low, low key is the Chinese business people. Now, they're giving money to Hunter Biden. They're forming deals with Hunter Biden. The uh, entity mentioned in the email about the vice president's residence foundation, it says that Owasco, this Owasco PC and Owasco LLC, mm -hmm. this is Hunter Biden's personal law firm. It's basically a clearinghouse for a lot of the money that comes in from foreign sources. So the fact that you have foreign business associates pouring money into Hunter Biden's LLC and then Ron Klain, vice president's chief of staff, asking for money from that entity, it just reeks to high heaven. Oh, high heaven. I mean, and to think that there's is there even a shred of a doubt in, in most normal Americans minds that obviously most of the people in Washington, D.C. are corrupt to some extent. And then when you see evidence like this pop up, it, it just seems so it, it, it's just so it's so clear. And when you have 20,000, the best part is that he's asking, he says, not much. We need to raise a total of 20,000. He says we need to keep it low key because raising money for the residents is bad PR. And he asks for it. You know, he wants $2,000. He wants a bunch of $2,000 checks, like 10 $2,000 donations, which is the same thing. Like if you've ever had a contractor that doesn't want to pay the IRS, you know, he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll do your kitchen. But can you pay me in a whole bunch of small checks? Because they're trying to hide money. This is how you get away from an audit. So it doesn't raise any flags. Oh, a couple thousand, couple thousand, couple thousand. Nobody's going to see that. I mean, doesn't that, doesn't that to you tell you everything that they wanted a whole bunch of $2,000 checks? Yeah, well, in the uh, money laundering process, it's a step called layering, where you layer 
the transactions, numerous legitimate and illegitimate transactions. Now, we would have to see the donors to this vice president's uh, residence foundation to know. I mean, I think I think they should release all of the donors. Um, but one other thing is this isn't the first favor that Ron Klain, as a federal government employee and chief of staff to the president, vice president, it's not the first favor he asks of Hunter Biden. He's sending Hunter Biden drafts in, uh, of Joe Biden's remarks, asking for commentary. Yeah. And then what happens? Hunter Biden comes to the vice president's uh, you know, vice president and asks for favors in return. Again, the meetings with the Chinese business associates, uh, favorable policies in Ukraine and elsewhere. So it's basically a quid pro quo inside the family. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's crazy. And in this in this big investigation, they're asking the witnesses in the grand jury investigation, asking witnesses about the uh, the big guy. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, it's all unraveling. It's going to be very, very interesting to watch, especially when you have Biden just in entering into the second year of his presidency. He's got a long time to go. Uh, this is all very interesting. Seamus Bruner. Thank you, sir, for taking the time. Good to see you. Yeah, thank you, Rob. All right. Coming up. Boy, isn't this a great story? Elon Musk taking on this new role with Twitter, buying up uh, more shares than anybody else. Why the move has some conservatives feeling very hopeful and a lot of liberals that used to really love Twitter and tell us to deal with it. Now they're very nervous. That's just ahead on Greg Kelly Reports. Stay tuned. George Soros, America's most controversial billionaire, is backing far-left district attorneys who are going easy on crime. Rob Schmidt looks at the shocking truth about Soros and the DAs all this week. Watch Rob Schmidt tonight. All right, welcome back. The 45th president of the United States of America is still banned from Twitter tonight. A country founded on the principles of free speech and free press does not allow a former president to speak freely. There you have it. Meanwhile, the guy that Joe Biden called a war criminal, Vladimir Putin, is still using Twitter as a propaganda machine for his unprovoked war invasion of Ukraine. What are the rules? Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini still tweeting out despite calling for death to America and destruction of Israel and being an overall POS in general. But there may be some light at the end of this dark Twitter tunnel. And the light starts with that man right there, billionaire Tesla founder Elon Musk taking aim at big tech censorship with his checkbook. He was just appointed to the board at Twitter, which I think has a dozen members, maybe. He's one of them now, after buying $3 billion worth of the company. Can you imagine? Savannah Hernandez is an independent journalist and podcaster who was recently suspended from Twitter just for reporting the facts about transgender swimmer Leah Thomas. She who must not be questioned, after all. Savannah, I see you're at the southern border tonight. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. But first off, I want to ask, are you still suspended from Twitter? I am, Rob. And yes, I apologize for being outside. But unlike the reporters on The Washington Post that are intent on, you know, writing about how bad free speech is going to be on Twitter now that Elon is a part of the board, um, unlike them, I'm actually out on the ground in America getting the story and trying to report on the truth. So apologies on being outside. But yes, we are still banned on Twitter, unfortunately. You're still banned on Twitter. So uh, let's talk about this. You, you, you've got Elon Musk. You've got this very interesting guy who's n- not a, a traditional conservative by any stretch of the imagination. He's more just a free thinker. And he's obviously a capitalist and a businessman, which is, you know, 
toxic these days, according to the left. When he decided to do this, Elon tweeted out, quote, free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. It's very true. Do you think he's going to liberate this platform uh, from the rule of the people that I, I think have totally lost their way? Um, Twitter is saying tonight that Trump won't be coming back, even with Elon Musk there. But how impactful do you think he will be? I think he's going to be extremely impactful, and we can see that already in the way that the left is reacting. They're saying that Elon being a part of the board is going to be horrible for free speech, when it's going to be the exact opposite. Look at what Elon is already doing right now. He's polling the people. He's actually being democratic, if you will, and asking people, hey, do you want an edit button? How do you feel about this or that? So I think that he's going to be doing a great job of bringing free speech back to Twitter and bringing both sides back to Twitter, because one of the main issues with the platform is that it is a public space, if you will. It is the public square where people do form their political opinions and people did vote for presidents based on what they saw on Twitter. So we need both sides. We need to be able to understand the truth of what's going on in this country. And it's very unfair to have the liberal left being the only one allowed to speak on the issues. And it's, you know what, it shows to me how weak the left are, because as a conservative myself, I hate echo chambers. Like, to me, there's nothing more boring than a place where just every Republican gets together and just hears their own opinion fed to them. I just find that to be, it's just not interesting to me. I like to see the other side. I like to analyze the other side. Uh, I like conversation. I like dialogue. And, and that's what we need. And that's what Twitter could be if these people would just get out of the way. That's what it was up until a few years ago. The conservative satire outlet, outlet the Babylon Bee, was suspended for a very clever spoof about the transgender Secretary of Health and Human Services, another woman that must not be questioned, Rachel Levine. The CEO of the Bee said, quote, Musk reached out to us before he polled his followers about Twitter's commitment to free speech. He wanted to confirm that we had, in fact, been suspended. He even mused on that call that he might need to buy Twitter. And now he's the largest shareholder. Do you think that the Babylon Bee suspension was somewhat of a final straw for Elon Musk? Because I know he's, he's had interactions with them before. I think so. They were friends of Elon. They had him on the podcast. Yeah. And I think that Elon realizing that so many of these voices being censored. And keep in mind, the Babylon Bee is a satire site. It's supposed to be fun for everybody involved. And it was. It was very hilarious. And people ended up having to, you know, really fact check the Babylon Bee even because their headlines turned out to be reality somehow. So I think this was the final catalyst when we can't even make jokes, when jokes are even being censored online, because the modern day is kind of a joke if you look at it now. Uh -huh. um, I think Elon is going to do a great job of really cleaning up House and bringing Twitter back to potentially its former glory. He needs to bring back President Trump. Hopefully, you know, that happens so we can hear from the former president. I would absolutely love to uh, hear what he has to say about Joe Biden lately, wouldn't we all? <laughs> yeah, it would, it would be pretty easy for him to fire off some tweets right now. I'm sure that's the case. I want to ask real quick, just what are you doing at the southern border? Just tell us what you're up to. So we're currently at Eagle Pass uh, at the border in Texas, and we've been watching illegal immigrants cross the river, the Rio Grande, all day into our country. We are here talking to, you know, Border Patrol about Title 42, which uh, Joe Biden is about to rescind. And there's going to be a big surge of migrants at the border. I was talking to a constable here today. Apparently, um, we've already almost reached the million mark for apprehensions at our southern border. It is only April. We reached that million mark, you know, in the entirety of 2021. It's April of 2020. We've already almost reached that mark. So the border completely out of control. Um, you know, Border Patrol is absolutely extremely overwhelmed. And it's very heartbreaking to see that we have no law and order in this country and that the Biden administration is allowing this to prosper.
It's very true. Very true. That's a reporter, ladies and gentlemen, Savannah Hernandez. Thank you so much uh, for taking the time. And thank you for having a really good camera because so many of these Skype shots, you know, it's, it's just you're blurry. You can't tell what's going on. That is a crystal clear uh, viewfinder you have there, and we love that. Thank you so much, Savannah. Good to see you. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it. All right. Coming up, the outskirts of Kiev. The suburbs there have been decimated by Russian forces. Reports of what's been happening to civilians has been horrific to hear what these Russian troops have been doing to innocent people. We're going to take you to a town called Mykolaiv coming up where some Ukrainians are coming home to horrific scenes of death and destruction. We've got that coming up. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky addressing the United Nations today. He called out the world body saying if they don't act now, they should just dissolve. The Russian military and those who gave them orders must be brought to justice immediately for war crimes in Ukraine. Anyone who has given criminal orders and carried out them by killing our people will be brought before the tribunal, which should be similar to the Nuremberg tribunals. Zelensky realizing what a lot of us know, the United Nations is a bit of a joke. One week ago today, a rocket struck the regional administration building in Ukraine's southern port city of Mykolaiv, where at least 35 bodies have been recovered by rescue workers. Just another atrocity in a war that's been full of atrocities. And yet the Ukrainians are not backing down. And that has been astonishing to see. Newsmax correspondent Michael Grimm interviewed a Ukrainian soldier in that town earlier today. He joins us now from Mykolaiv tonight. Uh, Michael, good to see you. Good evening, Rob. Yes, we're in blackout conditions here in Mykolaiv. We can't have any light near any windows. The hotel we're in is completely boarded up. It looks like it's closed. And that's because, obviously, with the amount of strikes they've been having in Mykolaiv, they don't want to have any beacons whatsoever for, for Russian fighter pilots or drones. So we're in blackout conditions here. Yesterday, rockets rained down across Mykolaiv. Um, Ten were originally counted, uh, and now it's now 12, the death count for yesterday, with more than 50 that were injured, many of whom were hospitalized. As you just mentioned, that deadly attack, we were there interviewing the governor at that administrative building, obviously prior to a rocket going right through it. Um, and as of today, a soldier told me 36 was the most recent count of the dead on that attack. So the numbers continue to rise as we see soldiers in media unveiling the war crimes in the uh, areas surrounding Kiev, and that's that Bucha area and Hostomel. We were there to verify just how horrific those scenes were. We spoke about that today with a soldier. This is what he had to say in his own words about Russian tactics. Russians, uh, like Nazi, uh, they try to scare the Ukrainians, but they not. Uh, because we're still fighting, we're still here, and uh, we don't uh, run. Uh, when I see what's uh, going in uh, Irpin, Bucha, uh, Trostenets, uh, we have only angry. Uh, we want to fight, uh, because we understand we are next. Basically, what he said was these terroristic attacks um, on the innocent civilians, the, the bloody uh, direct shots to the women and children will not scare them from fighting. They will stand. Their resolve is strong and they will not relent. They want their freedom and they will fight for their women and children. Back to you. 
It's astonishing, isn't it? I mean, it, it's some of the strongest people around. It is amazing to see that resolve. It is. Michael Grimm, uh, great report. Thank you so much, and stay safe. I know you're Thank not you. in a safe place. Try to stay safe. We appreciate it. All right, just hours after the liberation of Chernyiv, Ukraine, Newsmax's correspondent John Huddy interviewed former Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko. Here's a bit of that interview. When you hear Putin and, and Russian officials saying that they're not responsible for Ukrainian civilian deaths, what do you say to that? Definitely we uh, think that uh, we have uh, two recommendations. First, don't trust Putin at all. He's a complete liar. Second, don't uh, accept Putin as an adequate person. He's mentally ill. You can see the full interview at Newsmax.com, and we'll be right back. If you've had it with the old news... And the same spent... Well, then Spicer & Company's your place... For the inside story. And for the facts that you need to know. Finally tonight, we all know that President Biden has himself a big mouth. It's gotten him into some trouble, like back in 2010, when announcing Obamacare, which we talked a lot about tonight, 12 years ago. Take a listen. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America, Barack Obama. Thank you, everybody. As much older than Obama, but not nearly as mature. In case you couldn't hear it, he said this is a big effing deal. Obama not impressed by his very immature vice president. And if you're telling me that that man right there on the left, Joe Biden, hasn't gotten a lot of plastic surgery in the last 10 or 15 years, I'd call you a liar. He looks like a completely different person, doesn't he, from 2010? Completely different. Well, it was all fun and games today, though, for this big phony reunion at the White House that was supposed to be about Obamacare. It was really about bringing Obama back in to show him off. And, hey, remember, this is, you know, why you like me because of this guy. Obama jabbed Joe about that 12-year-old gaffe today. Take a listen. If you can get millions of people health coverage and better protection, it is, to quote a famous American, a pretty big deal. <laughs> <laughs> he's a joke. It is a little embarrassing that he's the president of the United States. And there's more to it than that. Joe later warned Obama that his mic was still hot after the ceremony was over. So they're still trying to, you know, get some dividends off of that joke. The real moment, though, and again... We showed you earlier, but, I mean, this is too fun. We have to do it again. It came at the very end after everyone started filing out of this room, <laughs> and everybody's just kind of talking. And, you know, like anything, it's, everything kind of turns more casual, and people start chatting. People start doing their own thing. Watch as the president of the United States, the leader of the free world, ostensibly the most powerful person in the world, cannot find anybody to talk to at the end of this stupid event.
to do. <laughs> you saw Pelosi. He tried to get Pelosi to talk to him. Pelosi's like, yeah, I don't care. Pelosi just walks away. <laughs> I mean, it's the president. You can't say enough about this. I mean, it's, God, I mean, what a moment. The president of the United States, everybody's talking to Obama, who hadn't been to the White House in like 12 years, or not 12 years, but five years, six years. Uh, and nobody wants to talk to Joe Biden. It's amazing. Moment got lots of attention uh, online with some critics suggesting the moment exemplifies just how unpopular the president is. It's quite something. That'll do it for us tonight here on Greg Kelly Reports. I'm back at 10 p.m. My day is just getting started. My show, Rob Schmidt Tonight, I Hate That Picture, right here on Newsmax. Tonight, we've got Senator Rand Paul breaking down incredible revelations on COVID, including comments from Fauci from 18 years ago that contradict everything he's publicly said for the past two years. Also, our week-long series on George Soros continues tonight. We're going to be talking to Nigel Farage about this radical left-winger destroying our cities by helping fund pro-crime DAs. He's going to talk about the damage Soros has done in Europe as well. Busy day for me. Hope to see you back here at 10 p.m. Have a good night.